Hey, I'm Tamara Kendacker, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. So on Tuesday, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan was replaced in a major cabinet shuffle, leaving the ongoing crisis of sexual misconduct in the military in the hands of incoming Minister Anita Anand. Over the last year, the Canadian military has been consistently in the headlines. There's been story after story about military leaders being accused of sexual misconduct or accused of enabling it. We learned, for example, that the highest ranking officer in the military was being investigated for sexual misconduct just a month after he retired. Former Chief of Defense Staff Jonathan Vance wasn't charged by the military, but a civilian criminal court has charged him with obstruction. Then there was his replacement, Admiral Art McDonald. A couple of weeks after stepping into his role, McDonald had to step aside because he too was facing allegations of sexual misconduct. The military, again, didn't lay charges, but McDonald is still on leave, and he's fighting to get his job back. Then there's Major General Danny Forden, who was at one point in charge of the countrywide vaccine rollout. He's facing a sexual assault charge in Quebec and maintains his innocence. These are just three of almost a dozen senior leaders that we know of who are somehow embroiled in this ongoing crisis. What I often hear when I have a discussion about sexual misconduct in the military is that, you know, it's a generational issue. You know, it's that these old, (laughs) these senior leaders need to get out of the way and we'll have cultural change. And that is not how cultural change works. Megan McKenzie is a professor and the Simons Chair in International Law and Human Security at BC's Simon Fraser University. She's been studying gender and culture in the military for over 10 years. Today on the show, what's wrong with the culture of the military, and is there any way to actually fix it? You're listening to The Decibel. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to start, If you had to describe the severity of the sexual misconduct crisis in the military to someone who hasn't been following the story, what would you say? Well, I mean, I think everyone's tired of hearing the term unprecedented. Um, I mean, over the last um, 18 months for a variety of reasons, but this is really a unique um, place for the Canadian Defence Forces, and it's a unique place for any Defence Force internationally. What's important, I think, for people to know who maybe haven't been following this is that it really involves the most senior leaders in the Canadian Defence Forces. And um, that matters for a couple of reasons. First, because, um, you know, it's such a hierarchical institution that the person who's in the chief of the defence staff role is really important for creating culture. And mm-hmm. But also because of the way the military justice system works, it's very difficult actually to investigate Um, someone at that level and to ensure um, sort of a transparent and fair um, investigation because the military justice system is set up so that you're investigated by um, uh, a juror of your peers. And there Mm -hmm. are very few people, there are no, there's no one at the same rank as the chief. You know, I definitely use the word crisis at this point. What do you think the past year has revealed about the culture of the military? For people that have worked with defense forces, not just the Canadian defense forces, but defense forces around the world, 
there's a history of having a sort of macho male dominated culture, not just male dominated, but, but macho culture. And, um, and also cultures where we would use a term, they're permissive of sexual misconduct. So that means that perpetrators feel emboldened, but also mm-hmm. victims feel hesitant to raise allegations. And so that has characterized the Canadian Defence Forces and other defence forces around the world. And I think in this sort of Me Too moment um, globally, where there's more awareness of sexual misconduct, more conversations, there have been sort of revelations within militaries and discussions about the need for cultural change. And as there's been pushes to integrate more women and also to integrate, to have a more diverse defense force, broadly speaking, I think you see this continual struggle to recruit and retain women and more women are sort of saying this is a key piece of the puzzle why some women don't stay and why some women do not want to work for the Canadian Defence Forces. Given how many people have been caught up in this and how high up this goes, what does this say about sexual assault and sexual misconduct in the military and how much it is a part of the culture and the armed forces? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to situate it in a broader social culture, a a social rape culture. And that's a term that is uncomfortable for, for many, but I think it's a useful term for understanding the ways that sexual assault, sexism more broadly, is normalized. Um, within our society. And certainly when you get into these kinds of institutions where you have a male-dominated structure, you have a institution that values violence, is defined by the use of violence, and is also defined by a really particular kind of idealized masculine soldier. I think it creates an environment where uh, misconduct is more permissive. It's definitely a systemic issue. This is an issue that victims have been raising and calling for change for decades. If you look back, you know, McLean's magazine did a sort of infamous expose in 1998. And if you read that Mm -hmm. now, it's almost eerie the way that the culture of sexual misconduct that they're talking about in 1998 is so similar to what victims are describing uh, in terms of the Canadian Defence Force today. Can you give us a sense of who tends to join the military? And is there something about the military that draws in people who then go on to commit acts of sexual misconduct? Some people join because their parents and their grandparents join. Some people join because they're a single mother and they want the stability. Some people join, you know, there's just, there's no one single type. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important not to stereotype, I think, the kind of person who joins or the kind of person who perpetrates sexual violence. Mm -hmm. I do think that uh, what happens within the military, you know, there's training and hazing processes that still happen that... Uh, we know that some of the the colleges um, and certainly some of the initiation rituals can um, can signal to service members that uh, the, you know how to be involved in a in kind of a band of brother culture. And so I think it's not necessarily the kind of person that joins, but the permissive environment that emboldens some service members to feel that this is okay or that they won't be caught. 
There's another uh, distinction that I wanted to highlight that you actually brought up in the op-ed that you wrote for The Globe, and it has to do with how previous generations would write off harassment and misconduct as jokes or hazing. Um, But right now, there are more sophisticated techniques to brushing these things under a rug. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, what I wanted to highlight in that piece was what I often hear when I have a discussion about sexual misconduct in the military is that, you know, it's a generational issue. You know, it's that these old, (laughs) these senior leaders need to get out of the way and we'll have cultural change. And that is not how cultural change works. Senior leaders with toxic views of sexual misconduct groom new senior leaders, um, unfortunately. And so I do think that overt sexual misconduct is less likely to happen in this environment. But what I was trying to say is that, you know, statements of zero tolerance, shifting service members to different um, units, those are all techniques that essentially protect perpetrators and they're, they are more nuanced, but but they do the same thing. They perpetuate a culture of violence and they create a culture where victims are not empowered to come forward and are not listened to or supported. So at the beginning of this month, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about another sexual misconduct scandal in the military. And he said, it's obvious that the military, quote, simply doesn't get it. What did you make of that statement? I was really disappointed in that statement. I think that the defense forces um, sit underneath the prime minister's office. You know, as I said in my op-ed, this is not a military dictatorship. So for for the prime minister to simply sort of say they don't get it, but then not follow up with how he is going to, or what his expectations are of that service... Um, it's really disappointing. And I think at this point, we cannot expect a dysfunctional institution to fix itself. And just before we move on to talking about solutions, I wonder if you can talk for a second about Harjit Sajjan and, and the role he's played in all of this. We're talking on Tuesday afternoon. And of course, this morning, it was announced that he's been replaced as defense minister. Yeah, I think that there was a real lack of leadership from um, Harjit Sajjan on this um, file and similar to the prime minister's comments of they just don't get it. I think you saw from, um, from Sajjan the, a real deferral back to the institution. I was sort of using this language of, you know, I'm, def- I'm referring this to the proper authorities and um, uh, making comments that sort of, infer that he's not the proper authority when in fact, you know, the Mm -hmm. chief of the defense staff, you know, serves at the pleasure of the minister. And so he has a a lot of authority to um, intervene and to set expectations for the defense forces. And in fact, that's, that's his job. That's the job of the minister. It was announced that Anita Anand, who has been serving as the Minister of Public Services and Procurement, she was in charge of vaccine procurement during the pandemic, that she would be replacing Harjit Sajjan as defense minister. And and what do you make of that change? I mean, I think they needed to put somebody different in that in that role that was very clear and that's been speculated for some time. Um, I think there's a lot of public trust 
in Anand, and that's at the, uh, that's a great place for her to start into this role with the public knowing who she is, trusting her, seeing her as someone who's able to um, solve complex problems. Um, and so I, I'm happy to see someone new in that role. I think for me, um, what I hesitate around, I think sometimes there's a there's an impression that simply putting a woman into a a, mm. a position of power when there's a a gender problem is enough to solve that problem, and that is not reasonable. Um, it, it is still a very complex systemic problem, and she will need support. She'll need a mandate. Are you concerned at all that she is uh, a civilian with no military experience? No, I am so pleased to see that she is a civilian with no military experience. I do not think the Minister of Defense should have been a previous serving member. I think that is there there needs to be a distinct split between the Canadian Defense Forces and the Government of Canada. And when you're trying to address a systemic band of brothers cultural issue and you have a minister who previously served with the chief of the defense staff who is under investigation, that's a problem. So former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor is currently doing a review of a possible external mechanism for reporting sexual misconduct cases in the military. And what are you hoping will come out of that review? I think that Louise Arbor is eminently qualified to do such a, a review. I, I'm not sure how much more evidence we need that we need external oversight of sexual misconduct. I'm sure she'll provide more insight as to how that can happen. But I think we need a roadmap to making that happen now. And certainly it's it's not foreign territory. You know, sexual misconduct used to be handled in the civilian justice system prior to 1998. And so it's not like it's unprecedented. I do worry that holding out, waiting for Arbor's review is another way of deferring action. I think there are some concrete things that can be done as we wait for that review. I do not think that review is is necessarily essential for action. So you wrote in your op-ed that Trudeau should implement all the recommendations of the 2015 Deschamps report, which looked into Canada's military and found that it had a, quote, sexualized culture that affected lower-ranking women. And for people who aren't familiar with that report, can you talk about what those recommendations are? That was another review that happened uh, several years ago now, and mm-hmm. it was very comprehensive. And it was after another period of scandal in um, the Canadian Defence Forces. And I think... Um, it was a very sensible, comprehensive review. It was one of the first formalized um, reports that used the language of sexualized culture and, and a culture of sexual misconduct. It was very explicit about the role of culture. And it made some very specific recommendations. Some of the most important ones that victims have sort of reiterated is um, moving sexual misconduct back out of the military justice system, as it once was prior to 1998, setting up an independent um, body to handle allegations of sexual misconduct. Cultural reform was part of the the, uh, recommendations. So they were very um, 
very specific and uh, and 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 widely embraced by victims advocates. And so I think you know several years later to have really almost none of them uh, implemented, I think is doesn't show a lot of faith when we have yet another review underway right now. We already had a, a huge investigation. We have a lot of evidence that these are the, the steps that need to take place. I want to put another idea to you, which a lot of people might see as radical, but there are people who say the culture of the military actually can't be fixed and they propose abolishing it altogether. So, I mean, a lot of people would think that that's a radical idea, but do you think it is? So I think that it's an important conversation for the Canadian public to have about what they want their defense forces to do. And this is a major public institution that is very well resourced. You know, we're at a different point right now, post uh, 20 year intervention in Afghanistan, for example, that is widely heralded as a huge failure. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that historically, Canadians have not been very aware or as engaged with what its defense forces are doing. There's sort of a misperception often that we're a peacekeeping nation and that's very much part of Canadian identity, even though we have reduced our contributions to peacekeeping forces over the past five years. Uh, We've been involved in combat operations in Afghanistan. And so there's sort of a, a gap between a public ideal of Canada as a peacekeeping country and the Canadian Defence Forces is primarily a peacekeeping force. And the reality, I think it's a very uncomfortable discussion for most Canadians. Most Canadians cannot or are not comfortable having a discussion about abolishing the military. Mm-hmm. There's, it's so tied up in, in Canadian identity as well as other uh, nations. I mean, of course, the conversations around abolish the police are also seen as radical conversations. Um, But I think there's more space to have those conversations than there are around the military. So given everything we've talked about, do you have hope that the culture of the military can actually be fixed? I think any institution and any group of people, you can have cultural change. I really do think that's possible. I think, you know, there's so much research to show that depending on leadership you can definitely change the cultural dynamics. I do think that we need to really think about the role of violence and the way that violence is assumed to be an effective solution to political problems if we want to have cultural change. And I think that's the tricky conversation that needs to happen around the broader mandate of the defense forces. For me, I think what one of the lessons of Afghanistan is that military might cannot solve complex political problems. So that's a tricky conversation when we have an institution that's historically been designed to use force, of course, amidst other professional tools, but the main mandate of militaries is the sort of authorized, sanctioned use of force. And so I I do think having that so central to the institution does create cultural problems. Megan, thank you so much for helping us think through this. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. 
I'm Tamara Kandaker. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Kasia Mihailovich. David Crosby edits the show. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thank you so much to Megan McKenzie. You can find her on Twitter at Megan H. McKenzie. If you want to reach us, you can email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at anima underscore TK. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.